Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Finally, you know, <laughs> through a series of opportunities to grow up, one of those going to ranger school uh, finally made me realize, hey, man, this is no shit. Like, you are a leader of people whose lives depend on you making good decisions. Like, this is no longer a job. This is a lifestyle. Um, and, and your life depends on your ability to be physically strong, uh, squared away on tactics, thinking about the mission and the men above all other things. And, and that really was kind of the wake up call for me. Let's go. Welcome to Citizen. We've got a special guest today, former Navy SEAL, Jason Redman. How's it going? Good, brother. How are you? I'm living the dream. You know, it's not 10 degrees in Texas anymore. People can't handle it here. Uh, well, yeah, I was just there, so I didn't think it was too bad, man. No, it wasn't that bad. I'm back in Virginia. It's about, uh, I think we're at about 20, I don't know, we were like 25 last night. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Well, I mean, you got the the wind coming off the water up there, though. That, that can get a little brutal. Eh, you know. It is what it is, man. You know the deal. Yeah, yeah. It'll well, always be worse. Well, you're wearing a stocking cap inside, so. Just well, that's because uh, this is our old office. We just bought a new one. We're heavy. Uh, literally, I was uh, moving this morning. We're putting furniture together, mm -hmm. so we have no heat in our old office. Oh, word, yeah. We, we've been dealing with that here, actually, lately. Um, so let's get into it. Um, before we get into, like, whatever you've got, all the stuff you got going on now, Let's go back in time a little bit um, and talk about how it is you ended up in the Navy in the first place. <laughs> I ended up in the Navy. Um, you know, I always wanted to go in the military. Uh, I was always interested or started to become interested at a young age in special ops. Uh, heard about the SEAL teams and was like, that's what I want to do. Um, we'll admit I almost didn't join the Navy just because the uh, Navy recruiter when I first went in there was a total dick mm. and uh, almost ended, uh, almost joined the Army, uh, literally went to MEPS for the Army. I was going to go Ranger and uh, I ruptured my eardrum when I was a kid. So the doc took one look at my scarred eardrum and said, hey, there's no way you'll ever be able to equalize. I'm disqualifying you, mm. which was true. I'd done that before. So uh, he actually did me a favor um, because uh, come full circle, new recruiter came in, ended up joining the Navy and going to the SEAL teams. And you have, you come from a family that served the country, right? I mean, like your grandfather your, and his brother, your, your, uh, like a lot of people in your family before you had served. Yeah, yeah. I came from a family of service. Uh, my grandfather definitely grew up hearing a lot of his stories. He had uh, flown a B-24 in World War II, highly decorated, uh, defense flying cross, I think seven air medals. Uh, never got to meet him. He passed away before I came along. But, uh, but yeah, I uh, originally wanted to be a pilot and then later, you know, later found out about special operations and said that's what I want to do. 
And your dad was uh, an airborne instructor, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. A black hat. I mean, that's, uh, you know, it's good to have one paratrooper in the family, at least, I think. Yeah, yeah. I grew up, uh, actually, he had an old, he had a DMRO'd parachute that I used to play mm. with when I was a kid, and I thought it was so cool. Yeah, a lot of people try to, I mean, it's it's very common on your last jump to bury your jump wings in the uh, drop zone, but a lot of people also try to steal that silk from the from the parachute and get it out of there, too. Not as that, easy. That could have been my dad. He, uh, he might have said, hey, you know, we, uh, <laughs> I, I got this from DRMO, but we all know how that works. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, there's only <laughs> one thief in the military. Everybody else is trying to get their shit back, right? Of course. Acquire. Yeah. Acquire. Yeah, you're, a, you're an acquisition specialist. Um, so... Tell me about your time on the teams. You you entered um, in the early '90s before um, before the GWAT, right? What was it like before the GWAT in the '90s? What were you guys up to? We trained a lot, um, and definitely coming off the heels, um, you know, we 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 trained hard and we played hard, and um, and I think in some ways there there was good in that. I think there's a balance. Um, I definitely bought into this mindset of, hey, I'm going to party like a rock star um, and had a lot of fun in those early years. But there was a lot of training. We trained and trained and trained. And obviously there wasn't a whole lot going on in the world. Um, I was fortunate enough, went down to Central and South America, was doing counter drug stuff down there. Um, you know, our camp, uh, we, we were... There was a lot of intel that the FARC were going to overrun the camp I was in in Colombia in 97, I believe. And um, and that was interesting as we got ready to implement our E&E plan. Uh, I think they did some recon by fire shooting into our camp. So in interesting, you know, but that was about the only real world thing I experienced uh prior to 9-11 and that was pretty common in, in special operations at that time there was just a lot a lot of training and maybe only one unit a year a couple of units a year would actually get to do something real mm. obviously when 9-11 happened that changed everything um <laughs> i think we quickly realized that um a lot of the old tactics uh, especially in the seal teams i can't speak for the other forces but in the seal teams the last period of sustained combat was uh, during Vietnam. So with that, it uh, I think we, you know, we were doing a lot. The tactics were outdated and they were based off, you know, riverine jungle based warfare. And we got to Iraq and Afghanistan and all that had changed. So anyways, pretty steep learning curve pretty quickly uh, where uh, I, I started to step on my toes a little bit as a young new leader. Sure. Yeah. And you're uh, <clears throat> you're an enlisted guy at this point, right before 9-11. And then you went, we, we call it green to gold. I don't know what you guys call it. Same program, we call mm. it Seaman Admiral. Mm, okay, what? So how did that work? Because I've is that common for special operators to get involved in that and that kind of transition from from you know enlisted to uh, an NTO to a fucking officer? It, yeah, it is pretty common. I mean, we like to recruit our officers from within if we can. Um, you know, usually prior enlisted guys make better officers. Um, <laughs> Every now and then you got guys like me that are knuckleheads and it takes us a little while to figure it out. 
But uh, we we do have a lot of guys that go down that path. They get recommended. Hey, this guy was a great enlisted guy. You know, he's looking for greater leadership opportunities. So let's recommend them for, um, you know, the different programs, whether that's Seaman to Admiral or a lot of our guys today already have degrees. I think we're reaching a point now where almost 70% of enlisted SEALs already have four-year degrees. Mm. So now it's just encouraging them to go to OCS if that's the pipeline they take. Sure. And uh, what made you decide to do it? You just wanted more responsibility or what was the difference for you, I guess? Uh, a combination of things. You know, we were still pre-9-11 at that point. There wasn't a whole lot going on in the world. Um, I had come from a family of officers, so that was one thing. Uh, I was being encouraged to do it. I had uh, my, my training officer. I was working in training at that time. He was encouraging me. He was a prior enlisted guy that had become an officer. He was encouraging me to do it. I was at a decision point for my career. Um, it was either screen for our next tier team, which I was definitely looking at. Um, although I had recently met my wife and we were getting married. So uh, that was kind of the decision point. Pre 9-11, not a whole lot happening. Um, so that's what made me decide, you know, why don't I go down this path, become an officer? I could always go over to, uh, you know, our, our, our tier one unit later. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and then the war kicks off though, right? I mean, it's the temp, the operational tempo for, mo for, for all of SOF and uh, a bunch of conventional forces as well, certainly mine, the 82nd, we deployed constantly a um, couple other units. I think the 101st deployed quite a bit as well, and then Rangers and shit. Um, it kind of, uh, you know, no, pl no plan survives first contact with the enemy, right? So things changed quite a bit after 2001. What was it like for you guys? Like, uh, I, And it, frankly, it took us a while to catch up as well. All of our field-grade officers had never been in any kind of combat before for the most part, right? Except for maybe some colonels and generals who had been involved to some degree, maybe in uh, Gulf War or Vietnam, right? But those are very different types of conflict. We weren't going house to house. We weren't fucking fighting insurgencies and shit. Um, as a matter of fact, I think the the most pr probably the most experience we had counterinsurgency wise was stuff down in South America, probably that you guys and some others that were doing, and then maybe in in Serb Kosovo area, right? To some degree, yeah. But that was pretty yeah. much it, right? For anybody that was in the active service at the time, and it was a there was um, very little institutional knowledge. You know what I mean? It's it's It was not a good thing. So what was it like for you guys? Because you're operating at a pretty high tempo over there. It, it was the same. I mean, I, like we said, I think um, guys quickly figured out, um, you know, boots on the ground. I think we had some first SEALs into Afghanistan at the end of 2002. And they quickly figured out that we just had big gaps. I mean, you nailed it. Uh, we had not encountered any warfare like that. We were very deficient on our mobility operations, uh, which became a critical part of the war. Um, we definitely needed to ramp up our close quarters combat and our urban warfare. Um, so a lot of that started to change. Um, and, and guys were coming back and saying, hey, this doesn't work. So really, I would say probably the greatest rewrite of our tactics occurred between um, the end of, you know, probably the beginning of 2002 all the way until, you know, probably 2005. Mm. 
And, uh, and I was gone during that time. I got picked up for the commissioning program in 2001. So literally, I started school before 9-11. 9-11 happened. And then, uh, uh, you know, all my friends were going off to war. And then I came back in May of 2004, stepped back in. Probably at that point, about 50% of the SEAL teams had combat experience. I think in the new platoon, I stepped into about half the platoon had combat experience. But it was the leadership's goal to get the SEAL teams 100% combat experience um, over the next several years. Mm -hmm. And that led to a very high op tempo. That led to uh, pretty heavy training uh, tempo. But it also led to... I think for new guys, it was good. They were coming in and they were stepping right into this opportunity to go to war, an opportunity they were getting some of the most cutting edge tactics. Guys were coming back and saying, hey, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to train to. Uh, guys like me that had been in for a while, you know, sometimes, you know, if you've learned bad habits, you have a tendency to hang on to those or those tactics. And so I, I stepped in trying to be a new leader on top of trying to new learn tactics and was kind of stepping on my toes through that. Yeah, it happens. You know, uh, good NCOs that will fucking rein you in if you're uh, if you've got good NCOs. But you know, it's it's interesting to me. You went from in the '90s, uh, basically, you know, um, being Charlie Sheen, right? Just running and gunning, doing stuff, stealing your own car back from a tow company, whatever, right? Playing golf, um, just being a crazy person, right? To now, it's gotten serious, and uh, not just. I'm sure, like a lot of people who I know who were in before 9/11 and and uh, you know persisted afterwards, were like, you know, <clears throat> I, I it's been described to me a lot of times where this like, I, I, maybe anger is not the right word, but something welled up in them. They're like, fuck these people, we're gonna go do this shit now, and they, like they became a serious person after that, right, in all parts of their life, um, including like their relationships and stuff, and that transition from, you know an operator who is, that's my job. It's something I do, you know, whatever, nine to five. And then I, you know, I prepare for it and stuff like that. So this is my fucking life 24 hours a day. Now it's that, that one of the things that both causes and, uh, makes worse post-traumatic stress is the heightened stress for per prolonged periods of time without any kind of break or recovery period. Right. So now you're going into it and you get in that place mentally and then the high op tempo deployment start, you get to that place physically as well. What's that like? So I, I'd love to say that that clicked in immediately. For me, I, I had to fuck up and hit rock bottom before that finally kind of fell into place. Um, I think I was still kind of hanging on to the nine to five, you know, work hard, play hard mindset uh, as a new officer. And it, it probably didn't help that, you know, I knew a lot of the guys in my platoon. Uh, oftentimes when a guy is enlisted, he's an East Coast guy, uh, most guys have a tendency to stay on one coast or the other throughout their career. I was an East Coast guy my whole career. A lot of times West Coast guys stay West Coast. So what will happen is if you're an enlisted East Coast guy, usually when you get commissioned, they'll send you to the West Coast. So now you're working with guys that you don't really have relationships with. Um, they needed officers on the East Coast, so I ended up staying. Once again, I think that created not a very good, it allowed me to, you know, peer leadership is always the hardest thing. 
Uh, and when you have friends, it had, I had a tendency to continue to want to go out and party. So anyways, rolling into the war, I don't think the reality of the situation had set in yet. Um, you know, the very first, uh, my very first introduction to combat was Red Wings. Mm. Um, not necessarily in combat, but that was my troop. We were getting ready to rip into Afghanistan. We had been on uh, standby in Germany and our, our platoons were rotating. We called it ripping, rotating in place. Mm. Um, so Echo Platoon was my sister platoon. I had trained with those guys. I actually had been in Echo Platoon for about three months uh, before they they flip-flopped me into Foxtrot. So, you know, I mean, I'll never forget. We were in Germany really packing up, getting ready to go in the next couple of weeks to Afghanistan. And we got word that the Hilo had been shot mm -hmm. down, uh, that there had been a big firefight, and that they didn't have comms with anybody on the ground. Uh, and then, of course, we started to get word that, you know, Marcus was on the run, Marcus Luttrell, and uh, and all of that unfolded. Um, several of our leadership immediately headed to Afghanistan. Um, we were still there for maybe a week uh, before we headed to Afghanistan. But I met, um, they had recovered, um, they had recovered mike murphy and they recovered danny deets and marcus had been recovered so several of us went up to lawn stool i met marcus for the first time and talked to some of our teammates so got to hear really a lot about that story and what it unfolded and then we headed to afghanistan only a couple of days after that and uh matt axelson's body still had not been recovered it was probably about three more days when we were in country when uh axe had been recovered and then we had the ramp ceremony for you know uh acts to send him home and they hadn't even had the memorial for the rest of our guys so we had lost um 11 seals the greatest loss that we had ever experienced on one day until years later we hit extortion 17. but that was my first introduction to combat and uh I, I think that was a little bit of a wake up call, although I'd end up making a mistake later, you know, being a little hot headed and wanting to get into the fight. And it was that bad call on a mission several months later that really hit rock bottom. And that finally, you know, <laughs> through a series of opportunities to grow up, one of those going to ranger school uh, finally made me realize, hey, man, this is no shit. Like, you are a leader of people whose lives depend on you making good decisions. Like, this is no longer a job. This is a lifestyle. Um, and, and your life depends on your ability to be physically strong, uh, squared away on tactics, thinking about the mission and the men above all other things. And, and that really was kind of the wake-up call for me. Do you think it was, um, like... I like to explore source, like root causes, right? Like what we, we, in the West especially, but I think this might just be true of all human beings when things get comfortable. We tend to try, diligently so for sure, but we tend to try to solve problems downstream, which is the wrong way to do it, right? Like it, uh, we, we have old at with adages about this, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Do you feel like in that moment when you're, when it's becoming real to you, when you're seeing Marcus laid up in the bed, when you're seeing fucking flags draped over caskets of buddies of yours and shit like that, um, th does the motivation change? Like, and it, did it did it follow you not just from deployment, but back to the gym when you got home, back to the range when you got home and shit like that? Is it always in the back of your mind? Because that's how it was for me. Yeah, and I and it followed me onto the battlefield. I wanted to get into a fight. I wanted to take the fight to the enemy. Um, you know, the bad call that I made 
we were in an Overwatch position. Um, I, I was I was uh, I was running a team of snipers, a javelin crew, and a machine gun crew, holding the high ground as we pushed another uh, assault team down through the valley uh, in southern Afghanistan, very heavily controlled Taliban territory, an area where. Uh, they had had a lot of issues with the Taliban down in the uh, Helmand province, south of Kandahar. And uh, right off the bat, we landed and, and our guys got into a gunfight and I wanted to get into the fight. I was up on this high ground and, um, you know, I held the high ground until later in the day when our guys got into another firefight. And I took it upon myself to, I saw an opportunity and I wanted to get into the fight. It was a bad call. Um, you know, giving up the high ground and, and I needed to move down mm. almost a thousand feet to connect with another element that was, you know, at least a click, if not a click and a half away. So it was just a bad call. But yeah, I wanted I wanted to get into the fight. I wanted revenge for our teammates that had died, you know, only a couple months earlier. So unfortunately as a leader, you know, you can't let your own desires cloud your decision making because you know that situation really could have turned out differently i could have taken me and my machine gunner down into that valley i mean it was riddled with taliban we didn't know where all the caves and fighting positions were you know we could have gone by a cave and a fighting mm -hmm. position where they would have had us they would have the drop on us and just smoke checked us so now we would have added multiple problems to already a problem-filled situation guys on the ground taking fire uh one of the afghans we we had been with was wounded uh they were taking fire from multiple sources so um yeah combat is complicated and <clears throat> you know definitely you know, you need cool-headed leaders who understand and are communicating through and don't let their ego get in the way. And I let my ego get in the way. Yeah, it happens. I mean, it's always like kind of a tightrope balance between our aggression and common sense, right? Like we know the right thing to do, but think long, think wrong, right? That's something that that's that's a real thing, right? You don't want to fucking get paralysis by analysis. And, and for a lot of people... Um, we, we say fight or flight, but those aren't the only two options. There's fight, flight, and freeze. And I've seen freeze quite a bit, actually, for people who are overthinking what's going on. I mean, the reason we the reason we put in so many repetitions is so that our brains and bodies just react to the circumstance because it's faster, right? There's no lag time. There's no ping, for lack of a better phrase. And I wonder, like, through those through those operations, you know, especially as a once you become an officer and you're in, in command of some of these operations. Um, you know, how do you how do you learn to balance your aggression with your common sense? Because it's good to be aggressive. Violence of action is really important. You know what I mean? Um, so how do you how do you balance? It's a, this is a two part question. How do you balance your aggression with your common sense and, and leadership skills? And then second is now, you know, later on in life after you're out of the military, how does that affect the way you make decisions in business and with your family and shit? Right. Because it's that those are what well, well, I think one of our superpowers uh, as vets is. We, we are very, among a very few people who can remain super calm in chaotic situations, right? And there's, that's, the, that's one of the most important things you can be, be in chaos is calm, right? So I, I wonder, like, one, how do you balance that stuff? And how did you learn how to balance it through your leadership time? And two, what's the application of that now as a civilian, business owner, family, whatever? Yeah, Dan, so for, first off, on the battlefield, you know, man, violence of action is a real thing, and it is an asset for us. 
uh, on the battlefield. I mean, we want to be fast and furious and ferocious, and we want the enemy to be afraid of us. Uh, and that is the way we want to take down targets and things like that. Where um, you have to be careful. Uh, I remember one time on a target, and even I, and and I know that the more, the longer you're on a deployment, and the more deployments you've done, and the more loss you've seen, and buddies you've lost, and violence, and all these things, it's very easy for that line to start to blur. And it's very easy to start to think, well, the amount of pressure and violence we apply in this situation justifies, the, the, the ends justify the means. And I remember we were at the end of our deployment, um, you know, the last deployment before I got wounded in 07, and uh, a very heavy deployment. We conducted over 80 direct action missions, um, got into a lot of gunfights. We lost multiple guys on that deployment um, from, from our sister troop up in Baghdad. Um, the very beginning of the deployment, we lost a guy. We lost guys in July. And then we had had a lot of close calls, and we had had several guys wounded already. Uh, and I remember we were taking down a target to go after a sniper. And uh, there were a lot of fighting age males on this target. Everything basically said we were at the right place. But we couldn't get any information and the guys were leveling up the pressure that we were placing on these guys and finally my chief came up to me and was like hey man we need to throttle this back and uh and he was right he was right i was kind of allowing this to happen but you know the deal you have to be very careful uh because at what point have you now cross the line where all you're doing is creating more terrorists people who were might have been sympathetic to you now they're like you know these motherfuckers came in the middle of the night they kicked down my door i didn't even care about their cause i just tried to stay neutral now i hate these guys and i'm joining the other side so that was a great example of a night that finding that balance you know you need to be hard you need to be direct but at the same time you got to respect the fact you know that not every one of these guys are bad guys you know, some of these are people that are just trying to make their way in the middle of a war. Yeah, On the business side, for sure. Go ahead. Yeah, that no, that's that's good. That that's one hundred percent true. Like when we, uh, my unit got popped into to for the surge. We were the first unit deployed in the surge um, in 07 in Iraq, and you know, we certainly there was some, um, there was quite a bit of like Iranian-backed terrorism going on. But the vast majority of the shit we did was like it, we were almost like police to some degree, right? Because um, they were running like real estate scams to fuck over Sunni and or threaten them and kill them just to get them out of their houses because they wanted to. Um, they were trying to expand Sadr City basically. They wanted to make Sadr City bigger. They wanted a Shia foothold right there in Baghdad. So yeah, it's like some dude is just poor. His family's poor, and he's trying to fucking do petty crime or something like that. And then a bunch of dudes and and rifles show up and fuck his shit up. And now all four of his sons, they're just going to be terrorists, I guess. Now, right? It's like, did we yeah. really? What what did we accomplish there exactly? You know what I mean? Like, you've got to have some kind of balance. You get, even though you don't like what's going on, or you know, as a as a human man and American human man and uh, from America, you're like, well, this isn't right. This dude's a criminal shitbag. He's victimizing other people. But that's not my job to go deal with that. It's really hard to fucking look past that shit and just do your job when you see people getting victimized around you. 
Well, that's the thing. And a lot of, I, you know, a lot of guys, and I see this frequently from the war, they're like, you know, fuck those guys. Every one of them is sympathetic. Every one of them is a fighter. You know, we would talk about there'd be men and w or women and children on target. And I would, you know, guys would say, you know what, they're sympathetic to the cause also. So they didn't care. And, and that's, a da that's a dangerous mindset. Um, you know, you don't know if that's true. Um, you know, maybe sometimes it is, maybe sometimes it isn't. But the reality is, um, you know, that's not your job. It's your job to take out people who truly are bad. And, uh, and you know, we're trying to redu reduce collateral damage on target. I mean, that's as much as we can, because, yeah, you're just going to make other people. And, and I saw it. I mean, I talked to, you know, oftentimes probably 80 percent, eh, maybe a high number, 70 percent of, you know, some of the things on target or some of the things that you encountered, individuals planting IEDs, a lot of the IEDs were exactly by, like you said, they were individuals who were just opportunists. They needed to make money because in war, markets collapse, jobs collapse, and Al-Qaeda would pressure these people. They would say, hey, man, here's 50 bucks. Go plant this IED at the end of this street. Well, that's more money than they've had in months. Mm -hmm. Um, and not only that, it's like either we're going to kill you and you're going to do this or we're going to give you 50 bucks and you're going to do this. So many of them would just take the opportunity. And, you know, what I found is, you know, 90 percent of the time when we took those guys down, they never put up a fight. They were immediately crying. Oh, my God, I love America. I'm sorry. I just, you know, they made me do it. And, you know, and obviously we'd collect whatever intelligence there was. We'd turn them over to the Iraqi authorities and then we'd move on to the next target. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros. Ghostbed. It's the best bed in the world. It's the most comfortable sheets, pillows, the whole thing. I've got them all, man. And, you know, they wanted to extend their best possible offer to drink it bros. They've been with us for a very long time. So this is the email they sent us. We want Drink It Bros to get the best offer, so I updated the code for 50% site-wide. That's 50% site-wide. Use the code DRINKINBROS, Drinking Bros with no G, for 50% off site-wide. Everything that you buy on this site is going to be 50% off. Again, they get the best pillows, sheets, mattresses. They get the mattress protector. Uh, if, you're, if you're sloppy and spill things and you don't want to jack up your mattress they have pretty much everything you need they've got weighted blankets now they've got the adjustable base which we really like i've got one in my home so go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros use the code drink it bros for 50 percent off site-wide and don't forget about their pay-to-go plan if you're with approved credit you're going to be able to pay this thing off over the course of three to five years for 25 to 35 bucks a month it's nothing go to ghostbed.com forward slash drink it bros today and use the code Drink It Bros for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by BlackRifleCoffee.com. The best coffee in the world. As a matter of fact, they won both the gold and bronze medal at the Golden Bean Awards this year for their exclusive coffee club entries in the elite category. So the best coffee on earth literally was Circus Bear by Black Rifle, one of their ECS. So I recommend that you go sign up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club Use the code CITIZEN, you're going to get those points off, and uh, you know you get all the benefits from being in the coffee club. You get the free shipping, you get access to all the partner deals, uh, uh, you get access to the exclusive coffee club, you get access to any new products that come out before anybody else does. 
you know, it's a very large club that they have over there. And the coffees are premium. Every single one of them is good. Uh, you're going to get experience for you. You can do just the plain coffee club. And if you want your two bags of, of uh, espresso or your two bags of silence or smooth or whatever it is you drink, you can get those two bags or one bag or whatever you want every month or and or rather you can use the ECS, the exclusive coffee club and get access to some of the most premium coffees on the planet and kind of learn what it is that you like. You know what I mean? So then you can order those premium coffees from Black Rifle as well. So, and we all know they got the best branding, the best merch, and they're buddies. You know, we're all friends here. Uh, we love Black Rifle. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, or buy something. Do whatever you want. Um, use the code CITIZEN. You're going to get those points off. And then what about, you know, so you're becoming, uh, I don't know if there's a word for this, but it's almost like an empathetic warrior at this point, right? Like, it, we, we, we go into shitholes, right? We don't go to fucking, we're not going to Switzerland to fight wars. We're not going to fucking Luxembourg and living in a fucking five-star hotel for a couple of months and fighting a war from it. We're going to places where things are already bad. And as you mentioned, war makes it worse. You know what I mean? So it's like if you're, if you're, just, if you're just a hammer, then everything's going to be a nail, right? And it's not right. It's not okay to do that. I, it's understandable. I'm not saying it's not understandable, but it's not right. Like, you got to be better than that, right? So, you know, being exposed to that stuff and starting to feel some level of empathy or compassion for the people around you, even the people that are kind of shitheads, like, man, this is a fucked up situation. Like, we've got a, we got a phrase for that there, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Like, who knows how I would react in that situation. And now you come back home, it's like, how do you take those skills and apply them, you know, to a world where things are not so chaotic? Because you've got to, you've got to sand the rough edges off of your strategies when you get back to the United States. You can't talk to people the way you talk to them over there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's 100% true. I used to, when I ran my nonprofit, we ran a, uh, I ran a leadership program for a while called Overcome Academy, and we would put wounded warriors for doing that. And we actually had a class called How to Talk Civilian. Um, so it was pretty funny. And yeah, I mean, and the world's only getting worse. I mean, Jesus, everybody is everybody is offended by anything in this day and age. So, you know, once again, I, I, I think life is about strategy. Um and and sometimes you have to play the game. Now you got to play the game in your favor, and you got to make sure that um, you're not totally compromising who you are in that scenario. I mean, that's you know later we can talk about politics because mm. I think that's where the system has totally collapsed. But on the business side, it, it became okay. What um, you know? What are the things that I have that provide value? And uh, for me, I had made mistakes as a leader. And I had learned a lot from those mistakes. I had, had to recreate leadership strategies for me. Uh, obviously, from the, the injuries that I sustained, I'd become very resilient, had become a name for that. So that became the business that I got into with speaking, leadership training, and resilience. Um, fast forward multiple years, uh, over the last two, three years, um, you know, we have started to expand uh, beyond just a speaking company and into investing in entrepreneurship. And where I think the military background has given me tremendous advantage is risk is risk taking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because I look at like, for example, 
I just bought a $3 million building um, and we're launching a new business out of it. It's a pretty big lift for us. It was a pretty major, <laughs> took about six months for us to close this deal and to make everything happen. Uh, it ended up being a lot more money than we had intended to bring to the table. Um, I, I feel like it was very difficult working with the bank. And I had a lot of people say to me, hey man, are you afraid? You know, man, oh my God, the the risk that you're taking. And I said, well, not really. I mean, yeah. my wife and I are afraid. I mean, what's the worst? I'm not going to die. Yeah. No one's going to shoot yeah. me if this fails. So beyond mm. that, then guess what? I'm willing to lean into this and put the work in and grind and make this work. And I think I meet a lot of people out in this life that are so afraid of the unknown that they're that they're unwilling to live their life. They're unwilling to take any kind of risk. And man, one of the biggest things that we learned is, you know, in this career, we take calculated risks. We plan it out. We look at, okay, hey, if I'm going to jump out of an airplane or I'm going to take down this target, what are all the things that I can stack the deck in my favor? And those are things that we have done in our business. Um, safety nets in place, if you will. Um, does it guarantee success? No. <laughs> but what's the worst? I mean... That's kind of how I look at it. And that's enabled me really to grow exponentially in the last several years with our business. And what about your family? Like, how is that? How is that leadership? Because for, for me, the way I deal interpersonally with people, um, when I first got when I first got out and kind of got back into the real world, it was a challenge for a long time because I was still speaking like I, to people like they, like they were my fucking soldiers. You know what I mean? Which is not uh, most people are not receptive to that over time, yeah. though. Over time, just, you know, and part of it was trial and error, certainly. But over time, I kind of learned um, how people are motivated a little bit differently. Like individuals, you might talk to five people and each one of them need to hear the same thing, but a different way, right? Um, and I think that's a really good leadership skill to learn for anybody, whether you're in the military business or any other kind of venture, but especially with your family at home, right? Because you're going to have a couple of kids and a wife and you can't talk to all of them the same. There's not some uniform code of military speak that you can use on your fucking family. Right. Uh, and not just, not just the way you speak to them, but the way you support and challenge them simultaneously, especially your kids. Right. Cause you don't, this, this taking calculated or managed risk, uh, at the young age with parental supervision is statistically shown to make much more resilient kids, uh, as adults, right? Like they're, they're so much more resilient that not only are they more resilient, but they're happier and they're more successful in, in business business and their relationships going on. So how do you map that onto the kids? What was it like for you, I guess, mapping it onto kids and shit? You know, for us, I think one of the great things is my wife and I were very aligned. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have an amazing wife. Uh, when you we, say aligned we, on what exactly, just out of curiosity? Pretty much everything. Okay. Probably we, we run our business together, our family together. We align, we were aligned on how we raise the kids um on on the path forward in all those things on our goals on our dreams on where we were going you know and and i think we had a very strong relationship uh not even i think i know we did and that is what enabled us in my opinion to raise strong kids i mean my kids are all young adults now uh my youngest is in college now uh, just started college so technically we're on the path of mm -hmm. empty nesters a lot of um Man, everybody, so many parents in this day and age are um, 
you know, what they call helicopter parents. You know, they're trying to control every aspect of their kids' lives to try and create this great outcome. And I think that creates the exact opposite. It's no different than micromanaging people in a business or in a military unit. Uh, it usually creates the opposite effect. When you micromanage people, you're telling them, I don't trust you, mm. um, which breaks down the culture, which breaks down the efficiency, which breaks down your forward progress. So my wife and I both were of the mindset that it is our job as parents to teach our kids how to be functioning adults. Mm -hmm. So from one, we always challenged them. They always had to do something. Um, you know, they had to do uh, uh, some kind of extracurricular activity beyond just school because we wanted them to go out and meet new people. We wanted them to have to do some hard things. And, and they were not allowed to quit. They had to finish it. Mm. If you started it, you had to go to the end of the semester and complete it. Right. Um, so those were some of the things that we implemented. And the other things, they didn't always, um, they may not have always done the things that we totally agreed with, but we let them play that out uh, because they needed to learn how to make decisions and understand the ramifications mm. of those decisions. So some of that had to do with dating decisions. You know, we might not have always approved with, people our kids dated, uh, especially I have two daughters, so on that side. Um, but, you know, we would communicate and say, hey, we don't agree with you, but I'm not going to just flat out tell you you can't date this individual. Mm. Um, you know, <laughs> but we don't think this is going to end well for you. And usually several months would go by and it didn't, um, you know, there's a couple bodies buried in the backyard. I really don't want to talk about that. But, um, <coughs> no, <laughs> but the bottom line we tried to let our kids make decisions and chart their path, and we supported it. And if we disagreed with it, we would tell them, but we would allow them to let it play out. As long as, it was, as, long as they weren't doing something that would create long-term damage. Sure, yeah. But we, we have a phrase for that, too. Teach a man to fish, right? The fuck? 100%. Like, you, you can't, you can't yeah. like, just coddle the kid the whole, their whole life and then expect them to go out and replicate like here here are all the right things and here's how you do it and you just set it all up for them you do everything and they're like all right here you go go out into the world like any anybody that's a tactile learner has learned nothing by you doing everything for them and the vast majority of men are tactile learners right so you're really setting them up for for failure um if you could but so much yeah, so ahead. much parents are running their kids this way in this day and age man mm -hmm. they 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 want to control everything with their kids, and kids are getting out into the real world, and they don't know how to function. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big problem because now we have a generation filled with not not dysfunctional is not even the right word. Like you're, it's they they have they don't have the capability to function. They're not functioning poorly. They're not functioning at all, right? So right, you know, I wonder. Um, some of the things that I picked up from what you're saying is challenge the kids, make them earn shit make them make decisions and then live with the consequences of it, provided they're not going to lose a life, limb, or eyesight, right? Um, yep. And then some things I think are really important is to make them communicate, make them socialize. Don't, like, if, if they're sitting up in their room fucking on video games all day, that's bad news, man. That, that, that kid's not learning how to be confident. They're not learning how to make direct eye contact, shake people's hands, and fucking say, like, here's, here's what I think. Here's how I'm feeling, right? Which is... Uh, you know, I don't want to get too caught up in talking about your feelings a lot if it's a young man. I, I think it's good to to have an understanding of that and talk about it, but you don't need to be a little bitch about it. But you do need to fucking communicate to people when they're wrong, right? This is this is how we keep our meritocracy intact. That and, and you know this as well as I do, in a fucking team room, 
it doesn't matter if you're the newest private or whatever ensign, if you're a brand new fucking butter bar, whatever. If something's fucked up, it is everybody's responsibility to say something about it. And if you're the only one that notices, it doesn't matter if you're the lowest ranking motherfucker in there. You better say something because somebody might get killed, right? So right. we have to give kids this confidence. And it only comes through two things. One is uh, understanding it, somebody train teaching them, right? And the other thing is doing it. There's the only, that's the only way that it works, right? So I wonder um, why we don't do more of that. I, I know a lot of dudes in the military do it, but I wonder why we don't take these lessons from paramilitary organizations like we've been a part of and, and send them downstream into our relationship and person building. Because we do it in business. Businesses, like if you go to an MBA school, You'll, you're you're going to hear a bunch of phrases that, you're, that you are familiar with from the military, right? It, it, they, the wording might be a little bit different, but it's the same concept. You know what I mean? For some reason, we haven't mapped that down onto the family unit yet, and I don't understand why. I don't either, man. I mean, we do it in my family. I'm, I'm you know, I'm thankful for that. Um, you know, so much so that uh, my wife and I actually have a relationship book coming out in 2025, and we're specifically targeting military, uh, law enforcement, and fire. I mean, it's for anyone, but really it's more of the protector community. Uh, I, I call the protector community anybody from that genre. And uh, I don't know if, uh, I don't know if guys, um, from that community have a tendency not to want to communicate with their family or what it is. Um, but man, you know, you know, the deal in the military, um, we have a super high divorce rate, same in law enforcement and fire. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot of skills that we can use. Like you said, that we used in the military. And I, and I talk about that in this book, you know, we kind of applied a mission mindset to our marriage. My wife and I did. Um, I call her the long-haired admiral for a reason, um, but it made for a very healthy marriage. Man, we survived craziness. I mean, we survived an entire career in special operations. We survived me failing as a young leader. We survived my battlefield injuries, my retirement. You know, we've run multiple businesses together. We've raised three successful kids. So um, learning how to yeah, because businesses are going to come and go. Jobs are going to come and go. But holy shit, man, if you can build a strong family, let me tell you what, man, as a guy who lay there dying on the battlefield, that's all you're really going to think about in yeah. the end. Yeah. And it's it's also like back to your point from before, what's the worst thing that can happen here? Um, I'm not going to die because my business fails. Um, you know, and, and so you, you wipe that one off the map. All right, cool. Now, what, what else can we become resilient to? And that's kind of one of the things we do during, uh, whether it's in our operational planning or if you're on a red cell team and you're trying to shoot holes in that plan or whatever the fuck. It's like, all right, cool. Here are some obvious things that could go wrong. Now, how do I plan for that, right? And we plan for every contingency we can think of, and then we move on. Well, there's no better plan for, there's no better contingency plan in life than to have a strong family unit, right? And I don't just mean for the individual family unit, but for all of society. We've seen, like, you can't, no, no, nothing could convince me that the societal decay that we see in the West these days is directly correlated with the fucking breakdown of the family, right? I mean, it's because that's where you learn everything. Those first six or seven years of your life where you learn how to be a good human being, now you, you may be doing it in, on, just on the weekends, right? 
but with 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 your dad and then you've got some other fucking asshole stepdad around or something like that this is <clears throat> look life is complicated bad shit happens sometimes and the truth is you can't change the past but the only thing you can do is take the next step in the right direction right so you know we know all this stuff to be true and a strong um, family helps support you through those times i mean that's the reality i mean we're all going to go through hard times when you go through hard times alone, it's a lot more difficult, man. When you're standing in the middle of a storm and you think you're by yourself, that that's really hard. Mm. When you're in the middle of a storm and you got some family that's there with you that says, hey, we're here with you, you're able to, it, it's just human nature. I mean, you can endure a hell of a lot more misery with uh, people that are, with, that are with you. For sure, yeah. And also, you know, from a stick and carrot perspective, obviously when you're in combat, you can't think about dying because you'll die. And you'll get somebody else killed, right? We, we like people always ask, like, "Oh, are you afraid?" I'm like, I, maybe at some level, right? Maybe I guess, but you can't. We don't think about that shit because you would just be paralyzed all the time. But I didn't have time. Yeah, it's that like, was what I normally told to do, people. Yeah. I mean, there was too much. Yeah, exactly. I had so much going on. I never really had time to think about. Oh my god, yeah. it was you know, man. How do we? We're taking fire from multiple positions. I need a head count. You know, we got somebody wounded. I need a casualty collection point. Hey, where are my aircraft? Um, all these different things. Yeah. I mean, it was so busy. The moment bullets started flying, I mean, I had 25 different things I needed to track on. Yeah, so th then we get into what, if, if it's not fear, if it's not an internal motivator like that, then what is it that's, you know, not just in combat, but generally speaking in life, that keeps you going? Um, the family, like your, the, the, your loved ones can serve as both of those things, right? Like, a, I think the thing that we're most afraid of is letting down the people close to us. That's always been the case for me. Like I was much more afraid of failing my team than I was of like fucking dying. Who cares? I'm dead. Like it's over for me. I don't give a shit. The fuck do I care about being dead? You know what I mean? Like I, my, 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 my pain is over. Um, but getting somebody else killed, right is that's that's extreme you don't want to fucking deal with that you don't want that on your conscience and then you know downstream um you don't want to see your kid out there making bad decisions because you don't ever want to put yourself in a position where you see your kid making a bad decision and you think oh damn that's what i did and i never taught them not to do that you know what i mean it's yeah like th this is the these are these this stuff is all within our power to control um so i wonder now that you've you know <clears throat> you've done it successfully right? You have three successful kids that are, that are going to have good lives now because of that. If you could give advice to somebody who's out of the military now or, or law enforcement, or whatever it is, or maybe still in, and they're still struggling with some of this stuff with their family, how to communicate and stuff, what advice would you give them? So, I, you know, I'm kind of on a mission in this life. How do, how do I help individuals you know, definitely for the military, law enforcement, fire community, but I think any individual, I think men today are struggling to figure out who they are and how you drive forward in this life. So I think the first thing, you have to have the ability to look in the mirror and, and you know, respect the person you're looking at. So some of the, I meet a lot of guys who we took care of ourselves physically in the military and now we don't. There are a lot of guys who stopped working out, they stopped taking care of themselves. So they've turned into, you know, a slob, uh, you know, and, and men, we respect some level of physical ability. Um, your kids respect it and your wife respects it. And, and so first and foremost, man, get back in the gym. Take care of yourself. 
it's going to improve your self-confidence. You're going to feel better. You're going to sleep better. You're going to look better. All those things. You're also going to burn. You're going to manage and burn cortisol better, which is really yes. important, right? Like, I, yes. I, I don't, I don't want to get too deep in the physiology there, but cortisol is the stress hormone. And the more, the, the more you face up to it, like all this, this cold plunge, fucking hot, doing, doing hikes, uh, your thing, legacy tribe, any of these challenging activities that you do that you put yourself through, even the mental ones, like learning new things, all of that shit helps you deal with stress better and helps you burn cortisol faster, right? That's one of the things that sets the special operations community more than any other physiological trait. It's not height. It's not muscle mass or bone density. It's not intelligence. It's their ability to burn cortisol. They burn cortisol at a 70% higher rate than the average person people in the special yeah. operations community. That is it. It's not a skill necessarily, but it is something that you develop over time by constantly like putting yourself in stressful situations that you can then work through, right? It's super important to do that. It isn't just about looking good. You know what I mean? Is, is what I'm saying. I mean, that's a byproduct. Yeah. I mean, that's just a byproduct. If you still go to the gym, you know, you look, but like you said, it makes you feel better. To be a leader takes a lot of energy. Mm. And as we get older, our energy stores are not as good as when we're younger. So by eating healthy, by getting some sleep, by reducing, you know, the alcohol you're consuming and by working out, you know, doing <laughs> some level of cardio and, and strength training, all of that is a foundational level. In my opinion, you know, in, in the stuff that I teach in my book, Overcome, physical leadership is the foundational level. If you are struggling in your life, get back in the gym. That's first and foremost what you should do. Uh, number two, um, you know, what are you doing to provide, you know, this world? I, I meet all these people that are like, fuck this world. Um, you know, they're, they're in, in, the, in the purpose and chasing the dollar. I hear a lot of people that complain about that. But whether you like it or not, this world runs on dollars. And and your ability to pay a mortgage, your ability to buy a car, your ability to, you know, do things with your family, whatever it is, it takes some level of money. So right now, I we're the middle class is dying off in this country, man. The the the, the big business is killing it. And in my opinion, in my opinion, the vast majority of the politicians do not care about you or, or um, you know, or the, uh, uh, you know, middle America. Mm -hmm. So go out and make some money, you know, find a purpose, find something that provides value and make some money. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to give you financial freedom and it's going to make a difference. You're going to feel more independent, your ability to make decisions instead of being just tied into some cog in the wheel. So that would be my advice, you know, take care of yourself physically uh, and then start finding a path to take care of yourself financially. We're at one of the best times in the history of the world. This device, for as dangerous as it is, it also will enable you, I mean, connect with the right people. And if you have an idea for a business in about three or four days with one of these, you could be up and running. You could have a website, you could have the ability to process payments, you could have the ability to market all these things right here in the palm of your hands. Uh, so the barrier to entry is so much less. So now suddenly you, you know, you feel better about yourself. You look better. You, you're reducing your stress levels. And if you're moving down a path where you're making a difference in your life financially, now you're impacting your family, your friends, and now you can start to make a bigger impact. You're a threat to the government because they don't want independent people. They want dependent people. Sure, yeah. They want people that have to depend on the government. 
And uh, screw that, man. Make yourself as independent as possible. And, and at that point, you're making your own decisions, and that's a threat to all kinds of people around you. It's not just a threat to bad actors. It's also like the, the more power that the individual has, the better society becomes, right? Because Yes. Because, I mean, it's the only way we're going to take our country back. Sure, yeah. Power gets decentralized in that, in that moment, right, when, when everybody is individually strong. And think about it like any other machine. If the parts are all super dependent on each other what what is the what are the, what is the practical application to that even if it was like a, a literal mechanical machine it means if one if you have one point of failure happen then the whole machine breaks down right well that's not how it works when everybody is strong and independent one point of failure means that these other strong and independent people can then go there and fucking help this person right instead of right. instead of having this uh, multi-point of failure system that we have now in American society that is dependent. And look, if you don't like, I, I say this to people all the time, if you really are conservative and you believe in small, limited government and shit like that, the best thing you can do is find problems in your own life and find problems in your community and solve them before the government shows up there. Because if the government shows up, or any bad actor, it doesn't just have to be government, anybody shows up, and there are no hands out. They don't have any power there, right? They're like, oh, I'm just going to go to the next town or whatever the fuck, right? So that's one of the most important things you can do as a human being is to be strong and independent of, you know, not, not, not the infrastructure necessarily, but certainly of the command and control element that happens in your country. Um, this is day one stuff. I mean, we're not, we're not splitting the atom here. People wrote this shit 245 years ago. And we started a war and f formed this country based on these ideas, right? Yeah, so yeah but people are losing sight of it. You know as well as I do. There's this idea that government's the answer. I mean, this idea of socialism is creeping back in. You know, what we need is uh, radical independence from the individual. I mean, it's not, you know, uh, if you, like you said, you know, if, if a man can take care of himself and his family financially, and he's not dependent on all these other entities, big business, all these different things. Um, now you're controlling your own destiny. And now you're even able to help more. The more money you make, I mean, Bedros Koulian talks about this. You know, Bedros has donated over $9 million just to Shriners mm -hmm. Hospital because he wanted to make a difference with it. Um, that is massive impact. And with impact comes a level of power and influence and respect. Uh, all of these things play together instead of just playing small and just being like, yeah, well, I'm happy with the government supporting me. Screw that, man. The government, you never know when that, <laughs> when the government may, may, may no longer be there or what else are they going to ask you for that level of support? Mm. Yeah, that's a big thing. So tell me about this uh, legacy tribe then. What, what's, what's going on with that? So many of the things that I just talked about, they're, they're all part of Legacy Tribe. So Legacy Tribe is a coaching group that uh, myself, Pedros Koulian, and Bryce Henson are a part of. We, we created it. Uh, and the idea is, how do we help people level up physically, personally, professionally? We want to make better family members. We want to make better leaders of families. We want to make better entre entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage you to continue to run that path and physically be the best version of yourself. Because we know with all those things, you're going to be more successful. Uh, your community is going to be better. You're, you know, from state to national, all across the board. So that's what the Legacy Tribe is about. It is um, 
You know, it's just a, it's a, a group coaching program. We meet once a week. Uh, you get each of us coaches every week. So Bedros once, Bryce once, mm -hmm. myself once. <clears throat> and then we always, uh, the, the fourth week, we bring in a, a guest coach. And we've had some amazing high-level coaches. Uh, tonight is, at, or no, uh, tonight's my night. Next week, we have seven-time Mr. Olympia, Flex Wheeler who's gonna be talking about, you know, following a path of A, physical excellence, but B, you know, following his dreams to achieve these high levels of success, high level goal setting. So uh, along with that, we provide access to all our courses and programming. Uh, you get two meetups in person every year with fellow members of the Legacy Tribe. So, I mean, it's a pretty good value and we, did, we intended to do it at a lower price point so that the average everyday um, you know, entrepreneur out there can afford it, because a lot of these programs are super high. I mean, like Bedros, for instance. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket outsourcing business tasks you hate what about selling with shopify whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. If you were to coach one-on-one -on -one with Bedros, he's $100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So he wanted to create something that uh, he could get uh, his, you know, access to individuals who could not afford those higher level programs. Yeah, and then uh, you also have the uh, Overcome and Survive workshops that happen twice a year. And I think there's one coming up in the spring, right? Yeah, April we do. So this is another part. I mean, if you want to take the last component, it's you know, your ability to protect and defend yourself. I am a strong advocate. I believe in what I think our founding fathers intended for the Second Amendment, that it was a counterbalance against government. I mean, if the government knows, if a tyrannical government knows that all its citizens are armed and they have the ability to come together and fight against them, that's a dangerous thing. We saw it overseas. Um, you know, we were fighting against guys that didn't have the technology, but I'll tell you what, they had plenty of weapons. And uh, even though typically we could beat them with our intelligence and air assets and everything else, man, they created a hell of a fight against us just because of their commitment to their cause and having access to weapons. Um, so I believe every American should own a gun. Every American should know how to fire that gun. Every American should teach their family how to do that. Um, understand the laws, 
you know, be smart with that, understand how to survive, understand situational awareness, understand all these different things. And that's what we're teaching in the overcome and survive course. Yeah, it's great, man. I mean, it's definitely a necessary thing. Um, some of it is just, uh, it, it's, we've kind of fallen into this trap where it's so obvious we don't teach it anymore. It's like, well, we don't do that. Like there's no, uh, the, the first commandment is uh, assume nothing, right? I mean, literally that's the first commandment in any kind of operation and life is an operation. It's the reason that so much, the reason that the military works the way it does is because it's effective. And the reason that that, uh, the organization and strategy from that permeate through civilian culture is also because it is it's applicable not just in military operations applicable everywhere whether you're running a family I'm not saying <laughs> I'm not saying line your kids up and have them fucking uh, at parade rest in the morning when you're fucking getting out of bed and shit that's not what I mean but like the or, the organizational structure and stuff like that makes sense so you should use it and you should you should assume nothing. Right. Well, like, your, your kids should understand that we live in a dangerous world mm. and that none of the, you, you know, like you said, assume nothing. Nothing is guaranteed. Um, you know, for everything that I've created, don't get me wrong, man. I, I you know, I've, I've created a life for myself where I, I can stay in nice hotels. I go on nice vacations and I like that shit. Mm. Um, but I also know that it could all be gone in the blink of an eye. And I grew up poor and the military trained me how to live out in the woods on a rock if I have mm. to. And I've taught my kids that. I've said, hey, look, none of this is guaranteed. You know, all of this someday, if we're not careful, this could all collapse. And we hope it won't. And, and let's follow the initial plan where, you know, we build businesses and we do things that hopefully can support this amazing republic that we live in. But guess what? If it ever falls... Uh, you want to make sure that you have the ability to continue to survive and thrive. And the majority of the nation doesn't. They just think, oh, this will always be here. Freedom will always be here. You know what? That's just not true. I hope, I pray that we can continue to hang on to it. But, you know, there's an erosion of it occurring. And uh, one of the questions that we ask in the Overcome and Survive course, the fundamental question is, will you be ready? Mm. And the question is, for what? Well, the answer is anything. Right. Yeah. What are you going to do if the lights go out? Like for real, that this is, that's a simple way to like a lot of people are like, well, it's hard to know what's going to happen. All right, cool. We'll start with this. What happens if the electrical grid fails? Can you survive for longer than three or four days? Right. Do you have the shit at your house or the skills necessary to survive for that amount of time? If not, then you're doing a disservice to yourself and your family, to be honest. There's no excuse for that bullshit. Like it, it's, you just have to fucking, you just, you have to be ready. For this stuff and most Not people don't they don't have a fallback plan mm. they don't think about where am i going to go they've never thought about the fact if suddenly their cell phones don't work where am i going to navigate to mm. um, these are all the things we cover in the course um, i teach people how to build uh blowout bags we give them a loadout list and encourage them to go build their own bags once they leave the course um you know that that is the reality i mean um what's the recent movie uh that just came out um, oh God, what is the name of it? Julia Roberts stars in it. It's on Netflix, but it's about, it's about the collapse of society. Um, uh, leave the world behind. They, yeah. Yeah. Leave the world behind. I encourage everybody to go watch that because I tell people in the course and Dan, you well know, I would say at any given time, we're only 96 hours away from 
a collapse of society. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the reality. Any given moment. I mean, if you suddenly well, people shut don't believe that, but grid- we've been we've been in countries where it's happened. Like everything's going relatively well, and all of a sudden it's fucking looting and chaos. Not not in one city or another city, but the whole country, the government collapses. You know what I mean? It's a real yep. thing. We it just hasn't happened here, so we don't believe it's a real thing. But it's happened. Well, all over but the we've world. got we've got some tastes of it. I yeah, mean, look what bit. happened when COVID occurred. Mm-hmm. You know, the run on the supply chain, the impact mm-hmm. it had. Look at what happened on the East Coast several years ago when uh, there was damage to one of the uh, gas lines. And suddenly there was a massive shortage of mm-hmm. gas here on the East Coast. Um, you know, the the I was reading about, I always keep my vehicles full. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I never let them. And I tell my kids, never below half a tank. You go fill it up. You never allow it. And, and when you go home, it should be full. Mm-hmm. Because um, you never know what's going to happen where you may have to grab your shit and drive away. And you got all these people that are sitting in you know, a gas station. And that's what happened during that time. And what did it turn into? Violence, problems. So. Shit, it's going on right now in uh, the Northeast Corridor in Chicago where um, super cold, right? And the, the, everybody's got their new little Tesla and the charging units won't work properly because it's too cold. So they've been sitting in parking lots for three days now. Wait, holy shit. No way, man. I thought the electronic vehicles were the savior of the nation. Uh, hang on, let me. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. telling me that there's a flaw? Yeah, we may, no. have, we may have fucked up on that one. <laughs> it's possible that we, it's possible we fucked up a little bit on that one. Well, it's not like nobody got warned about it. You know yeah, I mean? it's not like many of us were like, wait a minute, the vast majority of our vehicles run on gasoline. Yeah. I get it. We want to make this transition, but maybe we should. This should be like a 20 year plan. Yeah, yeah, be reasonable, you know. Um, yeah, it's crazy. But, you know, all these things are things relatively easy to do. It's about discipline, though, right? Like you you it's easier to give your kids an iPad and, and, and McDonald's French fries than it is to give them eye to eye contact time and good food. But. You're going to get what you fucking pay for. I'll tell you that. In your own life, yep. too. I mean, you, if you eat garbage, you're going to feel like garbage. And if you fucking give your kids garbage, whether it's uh, content or food or attention or whatever it is, that's what you're going to get out of them, too. So, you know. And is. your kids are going to learn from you. Sure. I try to explain that to people. It's very rare that children break out of the uh, template that their parents set for them. Sure, yeah. So, you know, if you don't work out, it's highly likely your kids won't work out. Yeah. yeah, which is, you know, it sounds, it all sounds daunting, but the good news is it's all in your fucking control, man. Like that, you, if you had to draw this up in a way that made it the best for you, for the individual, having most of it in your own control is the best possible way you could have done it, right? Because you're going to tailor it specifically to yourself. So don't look at it as daunting. It's not what it is. It's certainly challenging, yeah, but it's not like, it, this is the way we want it to be, right? This is this is exactly what we want. So, uh, I and it's never too late. I mean, you look at. I mean, there are so many individuals, and there may be individuals out there that say, "Oh my God, Jay, I'm in my early 60s." I believe Colonel Sanders was 67 when he launched Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it really is on you if you're ready to make a change. You know, it's just a commitment create a plan and then take action on that plan. Yeah. And there's a lot of resources out there like yours. Uh, so before we get out of here, tell everybody where they can find you and find your, uh, your resources for this stuff. Yeah. If you go to jasonredmond.com, uh, you can find me, you'll find, uh, if you look under courses, you'll find the overcome and survive course. 
It's a great course, everybody that's gone through it. There's a video on that page when you go look at it if you want to see more of what we do with some testimonials from people that have been through. On the coaching side, you'll see uh, the Legacy Tribe. Now, I will say we only open that up once a quarter. Um, that way we're not constantly having new people. We're trying to create relationships So every quarter. So we just uh, we will open again. Uh, let's see, we just did it here in January. So April, we'll open Legacy Tribe back up again. Sweet. Well, you know where to find them, folks. Go, uh, go check them out. And look, thanks for coming today, man. It's been a really good conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, likewise, Dan. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, for sure, dude. And uh, we'll see you again sometime soon. And we'll see all you later. Thank you all for listening. This has been Citizen. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.